0: Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital, where PE leaders open their playbooks to discuss today's PE trends. Hello, and welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital podcast, a regular look at trends and key issues across the private equity industry. I'm Robert Darwin. I'm a partner in our London private equity practice. And in this episode, we consider the current state of the market for private equity investments, in the life sciences and healthcare sector, where we've been, where we currently are, and perhaps where we might be going. We're joined today by an exceptional panel comprised of senior PE leaders focused on the US, UK, and European markets, but I'll let them introduce themselves. Charles.
1: Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Charles Kennedy. I'm a physician trained in internal medicine. I'm also a CEO and managing partner of Blue Ox Healthcare Partners, a private equity firm uh, specializing in providing growth uh, capital to healthcare uh, innovators. Well.
2: Hi there, uh, I'm Mark Reganza. I guess I'm a lapsed physician who, uh, after going through management consulting and a variety of executive roles in biotech in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, ended up in uh, venture and private equity life sciences investing. Most recently, in uh, 2014, I was one of the founding partners who put together GHO Capital, who are a mid-market private equity investor. Uh, last year, I took a bit of a break for some family time, and now I'm exploring multiple investment opportunities across the size and stage spectrum in products and product-like services, and I'm based out of the U.K. Terrific. Welcome.
3: Matthew. Um, Hi, it's Matthew Strasberg. Um, I'm based in London, uh, but cover Central and Eastern Europe as part of uh, being a partner at Mid-Europa Partners. Uh, We are a mid-market growth buyout investor, generalist as a fund, but I'm personally uh, leading the healthcare services effort. We've invested in seven platforms over the last 10 years, uh, cumulatively putting to work about 600 million euros into those investments. Spanning uh, from Poland all the way down to Turkey.
0: Thank you, and we're delighted to have assembled such an impressive panel for this podcast. And so we want to get on and and hear their insights. Um, by anyone's estimation, twenty twenty was an exceptional year. But what the expectation of when the pandemic hit was that Bill volumes would stay depressed. That actually may not quite have been the case for private equity investments in life sciences and healthcare. Matthew i think it's fair to say that you're one of the leading partners of one of the leading eastern european focused funds and so you very interested to hear your your view as to how 2020
3: actually was sure i mean clearly the deal activity is, is based on, on the reality of how the uh, underlying assets are performing um the initial disruption from the lockdowns clearly put a lot of uncertainty around the market and most of the deal activity naturally uh, came to a halt as people just coped with with the natural reduction in volumes. Uh, But very quickly, uh, as early as May, there was a visible rebound in patient volumes, followed then by a very robust summer, which actually witnessed a kind of beyond uh, counter-cyclical rebound where a lot of procedures that had been postponed during the first lockdown were being uh, fulfilled in the private sector uh, because Mm. the public sector had too much backlog to cope with. And then we saw the second half where despite the fact that arguably there has been um, effectively a second wave with increasing number of of, uh, patients uh, being uh, back in hospitals for COVID, you saw a a significant stability in terms of the volumes uh, across the board plus additional revenues for those players who participate in that in uh, providing COVID testing. So overall, I think the, the um, deal activity has reflected this, this cycle, really uh, activity that was scheduled for the first half of the year was largely postponed due to just logistical complexity of running a process. But then as people learned to work remotely, you saw a pretty good uh, and vigorous uh, resumption of dialogue in the second half of the year with a number of transactions coming to fruition. One theme that that is clearly visible is that now, as we look towards the end of the year, owners of healthcare assets have become extremely convinced of extraordinary resilience uh, of those businesses. But on the buy side, there is a question about sustainability and growth prospects in the medium term. So I think, you know, as we enter into 2021, this potential bifurcation of expectations may caused some hiccups in terms of actual uh, deals coming to fruition. But overall the dynamics during 2020 were actually surprisingly positive.
0: Mm, That's that's very interesting to hear. Mark, I don't know if if there's anything you'd add to that based on your observations of 2020.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, I'm not as much of a patient services guy. In fact, I'm not a patient services guy, but I spent a lot of time in products and product like sort of um, CRA, CXOs, contract manufacturing type services. Um, and has helped out a few people in the- their thinking last year. I-, I think that that last comment about a potential bifurcation around continued growth and prospects really sums up what I saw people struggling with last year, which was that COVID provided a huge bump for a number of players who were providing products, diagnostics, reagents, or some kind of service that was linked to COVID. They saw absolutely massive windfall profits, and new players into that, those, those transactions had really struggled with trying to figure out what was a bump, what was sustainable, how to normalize those numbers. Uh, and I think similarly, there was a lot of underperformance in people who weren't connected to COVID. And in general, that was explained away by saying, oh, this is just COVID, don't worry about it, it's just COVID. When COVID's gone, it'll all come back. And I think that both of those aspects were really causing valuation headaches for people last
0: year. Um, and that was the thing that I kind of saw. That's helpful. And I'd, I'd like to bring Charles uh, in here, both to kind of look at the end of 2020 and also, you know, think about, about 2021, because I think it's it's tempting, you know, through the power of desire to think about 2021 as somehow different to 2020. I mean, in some ways it's not because, you know, there's a lot another lockdown in the UK and I'm recording this from my home office. But in some ways it is in that the market's got chance to get to grips with the fact that know at least we know what we're dealing with and how we might deal with it and clearly we also have the beginnings although with varying degrees of success of vaccinations in in certain countries Charles you're too modest to say but I'll say for you that Blue Ox has got a really long and significant track record of good high quality investing in the U.S. in life sciences and healthcare so uh, very interested to hear what you've got to say and you know we'll be interested to hear your perspective as a real player in the U.S. about thoughts on 2020 and also you know How's 2021 shaping up in the U.S. with all the varying factors at play?
1: Sure. Well, I, I don't have a lot to add regarding 2020 to what's already been said. I, I will simply point to in the area of uh, life sciences investing, while the volatility that COVID introduced uh, provided some uncertainty around valuations and you know how to expect the market to, uh, activity to pick up, There is an underlying message with the COVID epidemic, and and that is pointing to the Pfizer and Moderna's uh, development process of their vaccines. Both of those companies leverage the new IT tools that are available, genomic analysis, molecular and cellular level analysis, to understand COVID, a disease we'd never seen before, develop a highly effective therapy, and do it in less than 25% of the time that it takes using traditional methods. So I think this dynamic of faster development of products, meaning potentially shorter development timelines as witnessed by those vaccines, very effective products, um, leveraging these new techniques as witnessed by the uh, mid 90% effectiveness of these vaccines. I think that dynamic, the innovation that's gonna come out of the application of information technology to biology, that dynamic in the efficiencies and capabilities it creates attracted significant, if not record, amounts of capital. And I think that trend is going to continue into 2021. The point that Matthew uh, raised regarding the concern of uh, how are we going to pay for that very much resonates uh, with me here in the United States. Right now, healthcare is not affordable to Americans today. And a lot of these innovations, if not brought to market correctly, uh, can add even greater costs to the healthcare system. And if there's one thing that gives me a bit of worry, it's how are the health plans and the governments uh, that are responsible for paying for these innovations, how are they going to react and how are they going to regulate the industry uh, so that they don't, so to speak, throw the baby out with the bathwater? The other big change, of course, is the incoming administration in the United States. We do expect the Biden administration to reinforce and expand the Affordable Care Act. I think that's going to be modestly supportive of healthcare investing as it, it will expand and, and shore up the pool of customers with decent insurance coverage. But the other thing I'm actually more interested in in the Biden administration's uh, attention on the Affordable Care Act is something in the United States known as CMMI or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. This area is really, uh, you know, my hope that there will be a, a reinvigoration of that area. It really has focused to date on uh, innovations in how we pay providers uh, known as value-based incentives or value-based care. And if they do a good job in aligning those innovations, not just with how care that is delivered is paid for, but also how innovation comes to market, we really could see a healthcare marketplace that remains friendly to investors, uh, rewards providers who offer high-quality care delivered efficiently, and still improve our ability to cure diseases and create compelling returns for investors. So I'm, I'm hopeful there's a bit of a wonderful outcome here, but lots of uncertainty as we enter 2021.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's a, a really helpful uh, summation. And we have some commonality with the US uh, in Europe, but we're not um, identical. And, you know, Matt, at Mid Europa, you know, you're one of the uh, leading voices on their investment committee. You've done a range of sophisticated deals across Europe. And so, you know, interested, firstly, to hear what you think is going on in 2021 in Europe. You know, firstly, any key things that in particular are different from the US and also any thoughts on Is there a viable exit market for investments at the moment?
3: Well, look, um, I'm not in a position to really benchmark the European market to the US market. I can just talk uh, about the European market in somewhat of an isolation. I think, you know, the healthcare market has been a very attractive pocket for European private equity, and it has been a growing theme. And, And really, that reflects the fact that, Regulatory-wise, um, the, the regulation has been reasonably stable, sometimes not overtly supportive of private enterprise uh, involvement. But at the same time, once certain structures have been developed, there hasn't been any instability. And, and ultimately, investors really hate unpredictability. And once something is well established, you can begin to uh, figure out how to make a return on it. Uh, What I would say is that, you know, the outlook at the moment seems quite good, because as I mentioned earlier, the big issue is really the the question of outlook for growth. People really want to pay for growth, and they expect growth. And some of the underlying themes in terms of aging population, which correlates with, uh, you know, need for chronic care, etc., are are here to stay, and, and COVID hasn't done anything to change that. In fact, arguably, you know, one of the potential concerns is that uh, those people who actually had COVID may develop some long term chronic uh, issues that we're not even fully aware of. Second thing, as we see, is that while everyone is enthusiastic about the vaccines, uh, there is a question about how long the antibodies actually uh, remain viable. So at least testing is likely to stay as a theme for quite a while as people effectively. Uh, go back and and with a reasonably high frequency seek to verify first that they're actually negative currently, but then as, as the vaccine gets rolled out, that they actually have the antibodies and those antibodies have a staying power. So we at least have a thesis that uh, overall, this whole pandemic has reinforced perception of on one hand resilience and on the other growth. Um, yeah. and growth. And I yeah. think that the third thing you have to note is that even for us that show slightly lower growth, there are new pockets of available capital, infrastructure funds, family offices, and other uh, investors with lower return expectations are entering the market. And that, in a way, provides the underpinning for all business models to to find a a good liquidity to the extent people want to transact.
0: I'd like to bring Mark in here, both to get any views that you want to share uh, on the European market, but also perhaps to pull things together you're not just across the Atlantic, but maybe also across the Pacific on a more, on a more global basis. Um, you've had a deep career within the investment uh, industry. You spent some years at TPG and at GHO. I think it's uh, modest to describe yourself as a lap physician. I don't know whether you're a lapsed physician or an elevate, if you've been elevated to a private equity investor. I don't know. Um, but in, in any case, it would be good to get your take on points on Europe, but also, you know, any global things that you think are, are, are noteworthy. Uh, I've definitely not been elevated. If you speak to any of the physicians in my family,
2: they definitely have a, a view on which direction I went. Um, I, I'd only add one thing to what Matthew said about uh, Europe, which is I think there has been an emergence of of some local service players. This 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 has created some people locally in industries that previously used to be pan-European, and so there's some the more smaller local champions that I think will be really interesting space to watch from an investment perspective. Um, I think from a themes perspective there, are, listen, when back in 2003, I used to develop personalized medicine diagnostics as a job. Um, and it was a really difficult thing to try and persuade people to pay for diagnostics. And that's been a theme for many, many years. Um, I think one thing that the COVID pandemic has probably done is throw the value of diagnostics into relief for people. Um, and Matthew just talked about it. I think in general, that's true. For many years, people have struggled to get paid for diagnostics, and it may be changing. Um, you need to get have diagnostics that actually provide value, and I'm not sure that the all of the modalities that are being being paid for recently actually provide value, but some of them do and the ones that do, I think will do very well. Um, and that might be a big shift. I think the other shifts um, that we've seen is that, you see that there's been a real validation. Charles mentioned this. has I been mean, a real validation of some new technologies. Some of the mRNA technologies um, were being developed in cancer, vaccines, et cetera, a real par six kind of development programs, because that's the only place you could get paid for it. Vaccines for infectious diseases, you didn't get paid for. Right? I, was, I was at Chiron. I would say you didn't. it was difficult to get paid for those things. All of a sudden, governments are seeing the huge economic impact many multiples of what the economic impact you might have thought would have coming from those. And so all of a sudden there's a gold mine in the validation of the, that new technology, and also in some of the very fast regulatory processes when people have pulled out the stops and pulled out the stops for recruiting patients. I'd say there's a double-edged sword for that, which I'm worried about and I would be looking at. The first one is, you know, all those companies that were developing in oncology haven't been able to recruit a patient for the last year. And there's a huge opportunity coming and picking the winners and help the investment opportunity in those spaces where you're now having, they're, they're gonna be competing for patients. And in the contract services side, there are gonna be some great opportunities there as well. I have a risk here that, that I would wanna keep an eye on, which is especially if some company, if some countries, sorry, emerge more slowly from this because they don't have vaccine availability. And you're beginning to see it in Germany and we're hearing about availability in the UK. All of a sudden, I think some of the governments might see this as a national strategic need. And although it's very clever technology, it's now been established how you generate mRNA vaccines. And it's not that complicated. And you might find that there is a view of nationalized provision rather than relying on the private markets and that will happen much more quickly in countries where they feel they get shorted so I think that's that's something that we need to look at the sort of this interplay
0: between government action and private sector roles yeah thank you and and clearly that's going to continue to be relevant as we move forward uh, we're gonna move on to our last question now which will be a group question but I, I'd like to start with Charles and say look you know if we could get now Time and only that there are only a few small pockets on the globe where this might actually be true today, but let's assume that most places on the globe are pretty restricted at the moment. And so, if we could get in our time machine and jump forward a few years to 2025, and for some people uh, that might be an appealing prospect based on uh, avoiding uh, lockdowns and moving forward, it'd be interesting to think about what the market might look then and what some of the key themes would be. And um, Charles would be, be very interested in any particular thoughts you've got on that.
1: Sure. Um, Well, thinking about it from uh, starting with the U.S., I think one of the themes I'd like to pick up on is this notion of affordability. And in the United States, through value-based incentives, we're really fundamentally changing how we pay providers. And thinking about that, you know, we've always thought about the United States as an outlaw in, in its reliance on private insurance and private delivery systems. I think with these changes in payment, you're going to see the United States kind of come into more alignment with how other systems um, are uh, managed on a global scale. So I think you will see the U.S. through, you know, there are a lot of similarities between value-based incentives and more traditional budgeting strategies of managing the cost of healthcare. And I think you're going to see some amount of convergence there. By the time we get to 2025, again, I'm going to sound an optimistic note. I think uh, with the new administration coming in, healthcare is gonna become somewhat more accessible and somewhat more affordable uh, due to a combination of more effective government action, uh, continued compelling technology innovations and payment reforms. I think the issue is for all this innovation, how are we going to pay for it? And I think what you'll see is certain types of innovations to pick up on the example of molecular diagnostics, uh, I think molecular diagnostics, which can detect disease at the molecular level before it's seen at a clinical or lab or radiologic uh, level, those innovations may become compelling because they will be seen by providers in plants who are now very focused on cost. They may be enablers of improved preventive health strategies. And if you can prevent disease, there's no better uh, value uh, that you can offer the payers. So I think the combination of of innovation that drives preventive disease, uh, more aggressive and appropriate government action, and the ongoing innovation from uh, the application of technology to biology, I think the combination of that, if we get this right, uh, could really put us in an environment where uh, investors uh, see good returns and good opportunities, while we do it in a way that doesn't break the piggy bank for uh, national uh, budgets as well as uh, private insurers. That's great. Thank you. Um, Matthew, Mark, is there
0: anything that you'd add to any of uh, Charles's comments? Listen, I, I think that
2: um, although there are puts and takes on what's going on right now, what is absolutely happening is the system's being shaken up and people are thinking about things in a new way and trying to learn about how to distribute health and benefit better and more efficiently. So the only thing I can say for certain is, in 2025 there'll have been some fantastic new winners and great investment opportunities to get there. As long as you can understand what's really driving them.
3: Yeah. Um, from my side, I think you know I would actually sort of counter a little bit Mark's um, potentially pessimistic concern about you know uh, state actors thinking that they should get more involved in provisioning. I think that this crisis actually has, first of all, highlighted the need for nimbleness and the fact that, at least in the countries that we tend to get involved in, it was actually the private players who were often ahead of the state systems in procuring, for example, protective equipment. So I think that overall, the perception by the state payer and the state decision makers in terms of ministries of health and and national health systems of the value of a symbiotic cooperative relationship with the private operators has actually improved. And what I would expect by 2025 is actually a greater openness in many countries in Europe towards private participation in solving the problems. I mean, one interesting anecdote is that UK, which is in a way uh, has a a very strongly established track record of, of seeing private participation and provisioning, actually had the most drastic temporary Effectively, nationalization of capacity um, during the peak uh, of the first wave of COVID, but it was seen as a kind of emergency step that was very rapidly you know, reversed, and, and, and no one actually by any means even attempted to argue that having grabbed this capacity, the state should continue to usurp it other than for those few peak uh, months of, of need. So I think, you know, and and in countries which have governments that are arguably more socialistic leaning, such step even didn't take place. So I think generally the state uh, system stayed out of the private system, but also learned to cooperate better and to include it more in provisioning. And so overall, I think it it, it augurs well for for overall European uh, sort of rebalancing towards greater participation by private operators in, in healthcare provisioning.
0: Thank you. That's been an incredibly dense and valuable uh, 25 minutes or so uh, on the topic. And I wish we had more time because we could explore so many of these topics in more depth and perhaps in due course we'll have that opportunity. Um, But for now, frustratingly, uh, we're slightly out of time. And so I'd just like to thank Mark, Charles and Matthew for for joining us today. It's been incredibly uh, helpful and we know your time is valuable. So thank you. For more information or to listen to previous Committed Capital episodes, please visit us at DECA.com. And remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can listen to the next episode, which will be focused around cybersecurity and its importance for private equity investors. And we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of Committed Capital. Thank you for listening.